Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Bioinformatics is rapidly evolving. For each new type of data we want to store and work with, there are often multiple different ways of storing those data. Most are not formally defined as you would find in more mature areas like engineering and have grown organically to meet the needs of the community. This makes interoperability often challenging and an open secret in bioinformatics that we just spend most of our time converting from one format to another and another. So this is something that groups like uh, GMI, GA, 4GH, and uh, Phage are trying to bring some cohesion to by bringing together international communities to, I suppose, make it a little bit saner by writing down all of these different file formats and specifications. So hopefully in the future, there'll be one format to rule them all. Yeah, FastQ seems like a good format to rule them all. Navil, uh, do you, do you want to start off with FastQ? FastQ. Well, we covered so much of it in a previous episode on the FastQ one, which people should listen to if they haven't already. But it's definitely um, it's definitely become the, the de facto standard for sharing raw sequencing data around most tools or proprietary platforms will generate their own and then it'll be reverted back down into, into FastQ. So, I mean, one of the what was the earliest one? What 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 do we call Sanger traces, for? I don't know. For capillary I just sequencing. Call them traces. Traces, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, sometimes uh, chromatograms too. Chromatograms, yeah, and they they really did look like some sort of like spectra, didn't they? You know, you had all the different base encodings just interwoven together when you opened them up, with with the intensities for each base, with like sort of the the reading for each base, although. You might know better than me, Lee. What are you supposed to do when you saw like a mixed signal, if that ever happened? Oh my gosh. So I, I actually, I'm, I'm trying to remember from like 10 years ago in my PhD that um, when you looked at the original Fred and Frapp papers, they, I cannot remember. I hope that somebody comments on this later. I think that they had to dive into statistics that were taken from seismographs, like from earthquakes, and they had to actually predict which base was the more dominant one at the time and the separation of the peaks. It was really weird to me. That's crazy. Um, and I'm not going to say any more on that because I don't want to over say overstate what I remember. That's It was really crazy. But in terms of other raw sequencing formats, uh, the ones I've experienced recently have been um, PacBio have had a HDF5 format. And HDF5 is this, uh, I suppose, container for general storing of huge data sets and packed by you know obviously we're using it because their their files are getting bigger and bigger but that was a pain 
to get anything in and out because you were stuck using their bespoke uh, tools and it's kind of a black box. There was specifications, but uh, they're quite difficult to use. So ultimately everyone would just take the data out as quick as possible, put it into FastQ and then move on from there. But luckily in the past few years with the SQL 2, they went with, or with the SQL, they went with uh, the BAM format. So that stores all the raw data and the methylation data and that kind of thing in BAM. And of course, once you have uh, your files and your reads in BAM, you can do pretty much anything with it because you can start using SAM tools and uh, all the different uh, tools for processing BAM. So it makes life quite easy when people adopt uh, a community supported format. I don't know if I'm asking you um, too much above and beyond, but how do they store the methylation data? I don't know that. Well, okay, so when you actually look at the SAM format, you can put in key value pairs at the end and they kind of bung them in there. So it, it's not ideal, but at least the data is there and you don't lose anything. So you can use that as your archiving format for PAC biodata. That's awesome. But then you have Nanopore and they are using uh, Fast5 and that's stores all the raw events. And then of course people then interrogate that, say with Nanopolish or whatever, or base callers, and they turn it into something people can use. I think a few years ago, or maybe even two years ago, when you would uh, call, turn your events into base calls, you would increase the file size by 10 times. It was crazy. But now luckily, you know, people have worked, are working better just with the raw data and we don't have that overhead. Also, the Nanopore software is producing FastQ files directly. So that's kind of what people want and it makes life a lot easier. Yeah, Fast5 should not be confused with Fast and the Furious 5. It is HDF5 though as well, strangely. So it's like PacBio. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought the technical term for the individual traces or what you would call traces in Sanger sequencing in in uh in nanopore was uh squiggles squiggles is, i've heard squiggles is that like wiggles wiggle files no no <laughs> no not like wiggle files squiggles squiggles because because uh they do look rather squiggly the the um readings i'm I sure know. i'm sure there's people out there who can just look at them look at the raw traces and then say oh yeah i know what that is there are some publications called like squiggle kit you know, things like that. It's a thing. Raw squiggle signals that come from nanopore sequences. Brilliant. I, I refuse to say it. I, I say, I call them traces because, because I can't say squiggle with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll join you on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, getting back to your point, Andrew, I mean, it's really, we've become a little bit spoiled with the fact that we have these established de facto standards like FastQ or BAM that we can hop back to if, we, if, we, uh, if we're not too happy with the proprietary format. And we can, once we've converted it, it's all flowing into our existing pipelines. I mean, I remember when I started, the first thing I had to work with was 454 data. Uh, and you had the SFFs, which were binary encoding of the, of the intensities. It's basically like the pictures it's taking as as it's um, sequencing and then that would be assembled into the ace format which is for assemblies which was both both of these both formats were 454's proprietary formats and uh, 
they had tools. The tools were nice to view it and look at it. You could look at them um, and it looked fairly fairly good. But if you wanted to dig in and actually do your own sort of optimization, you wanted to go back and try and predict how to repair homopolymers or uh, things like that, it wasn't fun. It really wasn't fun uh, trying, to, trying to work with that. I mean, Lee, do you remember the ACE format or the SFF format? Oh my God, yeah. I um, I have a URL that I'll try to put in the show notes if I didn't have it on there already. But um, where I was inquiring into BioPearl and to BioStars, just how to convert back and forth, and it was a huge headache, huge headache. And I think it was about ten years ago actually. And then eventually I realized that there was a newer format called SAM format, and I was like, this is way better, and I switched over. I think one more comment I want to make on that, though, is like, I think a general trend here is that the formats that are proprietary versus those that were kind of developed in the community are the ones in the community are like tried and true, and we keep going back to them, like SAM format. Well, you've got, you've definitely got a bit of inertia now that uh, you have such fantastic tools built around the SAM or BAM format that to redo them all again for some other new proprietary format doesn't really make any sense. Uh, it would be nice, but yeah, but the thing is, is that for all of the ones that we do tend to use in the community, it's, it's a de facto standard. No, uh, regular, we don't have a standards, well, we don't have an official standards committee that decides what our file formats be for a particular type of data. Although at the moment that seems to be a big push by a lot of organizations. Would you know any more about those, Andrew? I know GA4GH are trying to standardize things like variant calling, so VCF format and the SAM and BAM and CRAM formats, that kind of thing. So they're taking on this role of having an established committee to safeguard the format and, well, to define it as well as people use it, because often formats are just defined by what the software actually outputs or what software reads in, you know, and if you have a popular program, well then, you know, that's what people are going to have to use whether it's written down or not. Yeah, I remember because because people were relying a lot on 454 in those days, you had to wrangle with that ACE format and it was fantastic. It had a bunch of headers that explained like the entire run. Do you remember, Lee? I'm, I'm going to bring you back. And then they had, they, had the, they had a description, a header, then the sequence for the contig, one after the other. And then at the bottom, there was a sequence, there was a section that explained the underlying reads and then it had a call out to which contig they were from. So it would so you could get a lot of information. You knew you had you know you had this you had the assemble contigs there that you could pull out and you knew where the reads were that were that were constructing it. But this read very much like a flat text file that uh, was more sort of like a <clears throat> laid out not 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 in terms of file format. It's not semantically similar, but it had the same feeling as looking at a GenBank file, the sort of thing where it's got things over multiple lines. It's got little uh, header characters, lines that start with this or the other to kind of designate what was going on. And that was really difficult to pass, especially if you're expecting to do things one line at a time. You're like really taking me aback. I, I think I repressed all that. That was an awful format. Ace format is dead. <laughs> Yeah, 454 four, four and all of that is very much dead.
Well, I, I knew 444 was dead when I saw one of the sequencers in a car park underground covered in dust. And I was like, yeah, I think it's gone now. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Not even worth... Uh, you can't do anything with it. There's no reagents, nothing. I mean, Bosch has just stopped, or life tech now has just stopped, uh, completely discontinued it. Guess onwards to greater and better things. So with Illumina, we have uh, BCL files, which is the default output that uh, the Illumina machines produce, but I've never come across anyone who actually does anything with the BCL files other than immediately converts them into FastQ. Yes, uh, that's what I tend to do most days. The BCL to FastQ program from Illumina is quite, quite nice. You got some options for basic filtering and control of what's coming out of the machine. But then once you've gone through that, yeah, it's straight onto the fast cues and then you can, and you throw the BCLs away. I can't, it's been a very, very long time. I'm thinking maybe GA2 when people went back and actually looked at the BCL again after the high seeks came out. I don't think anyone ever bothered. Well, I remember with the GA2, like there are eight lanes on it and I know Sanger would run one entire lane just as a control. Just Fire X. Just Fire X on yeah. an entire lane for every single run. It was lane four, by the way. Lane four. Yeah, lane four was Fire X, yeah. Why, why lane four? I don't know. It was just in the middle. I think you had uh, you had dropped the lane. <laughs> so the lanes, you had slightly different qualities depending on which lane you were in. I think the, I think the ones on the edges gave you worse quality. I can't remember. But there was some funny business about, uh, yeah, which lane you picked. You'd get different you know your base quality would be quite different i mean this this is going back it was this was back when you really did like to go back to your uh, raw output and look at it and think about can you improve the quality is there any sort of systemic error being introduced now i mean this is when you had you were dealing with reads of q20 q30 you know um and now it's like Q40, Q50. Like if there's an error, you don't really care. You know, you, you, it's quite unlikely that you're going to see it. And you've got enough t coverage that you're going to, you can correct it. Interesting. Is there any reason to keep around the BCLs? I, I honestly don't know then. If you want to rebase call, that's about it. But I think we're so comfortable with the base call and the Lumina has that no one really bothers. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing you might want to do is you might want to go back and look at your in indexes, something like that. You know, like the BCLs will be, ha I think the only thing you like really I'd go back to it is if this run was really, really important and I was worried about bleed through on barcodes or something like that. And I wanted to just sort of dig around and see what was going on there. Otherwise, but you can scrub most of that information out. You can get BCL to FASQ to drop out all of the indexes and all of the quality scores. So you know, yeah, you, you know pretty much what's going on. So another area with lots of file formats is genome annotation. And I think the best format that people are familiar with is GenBank. But also, you may not know, there's also an EMBL format, which is basically like GenBank, except not. Yeah, it's European. Um, yeah, <laughs> European GenBank. I don't know which one was first. One must have come first. One must have been circulated first. I don't know which one was first. I have no uh, idea. The way you know an EMBL file is that it's at the first, uh, the start of every line has a little um, code 
that delimits what type of data is on that line. So FT was feature. FT was feature. So you see FT at the start. That's yeah. a feature line. CO was contig or something. Uh, did it have no? I don't think. So. And then there's numbers then for the yeah. the sequence part. Yeah, the sequ the faster bit at the bottom was was numbered, and I think SO was the I can't remember what they had one for the main header. And then the line length is uh, hard clipped. It is it sixty or eighty? You just can't have any more characters in the line, and then you have to wrap it around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that probably came first because so that, that's, that's literally like from the the mainframe terminals from the seventies, probably probably even earlier. Yeah, because you couldn't scroll. <laughs> you literally had eighty characters on the screen. <laughs> um, that's interesting. One more thing about EM. I always call it EMBL. I had no idea that you pronounced it actually, Embol. <laughs> uh, one more thing about that format is it's parsable that um, they, that you do have those two letter codes. With GenBank, they actually give you like a disclaimer that it's not the thing you're supposed to be parsing. Oh, brilliant. That's handy. So, why did we write all of those parses for GenBank files if we weren't supposed to parse it? I think it's just for, like, they always displayed it. They always had it, so we were just forced to do it. But luckily, there is different uh, formats coming out now. Like, uh, for the past few years, we've had GFF, and that's, like, GFF 1, 2, 2.5, two 3. And I think 3 is what people are mostly using in our community. And I'm not sure why, but they are not necessarily back compatible. So the parser for GFF 2 may not work for GFF 3. If you've ever read the actual... Uh, implementation which is used as the kind of gold standard it's written in Perl and it's a car crash it's like <laughs> this huge section of code is for two this huge section of code is for three um, not a car crash in, in, you know, in terms of coding it's just they're quite different formats but I think thanks to, to Proca and Torsen Siemens work everyone has adopted one particular type of GFF3 format in our community and that's the one where you have an extra fast faster file at the very end. So you have the annotation and the sequence in the same file. But technically, that's not really the GFF format. That's like an add-in that Artemis put in for the crack. I always thought that it was um, part of the format. No, no. It's, it's like uh, if you read the code, it, it says like... Uh, Basically, this is what Artemis does, so have a keep an eye out for that and ignore everything below a line that says uh, hash hash faster. It's only meant to be just the annotations, uh, and and you're meant to have a separate faster file that, that goes along with it. So, But GemBank have another file format, now that I think about it. It's a, it's a GBF or something like that, but basically it is GemBank plus the uh, the assembly at the end or GFF plus the assembly at the end. It's oh yeah, there's, there's Gen, so yeah, on the, you, you still see it on the website actually if you try to download a sequence. They have GenBank and GenBank full and there is a difference between the two, I think, or there used to be. So th this is where they have a GFF file and the extra bit at the end and you can actually use that with a lot of programs that accept GFF. S nearly. Because they have changed the format slightly, they don't have the the hash hash faster line separating the the annotation and the assembly, which is pain because that means for a software developer you have to put in yet another check to double check will this format work. <laughs> but actually, the the most annoying thing is the the actual content of all these annotation files because no one agrees on anything. No one can agree on. 
do you start counting at base zero or base one? Oh yeah, that uh -huh. got me. That yeah, got me quite often. Interbase and intrabase, and that's just—it's such a basic thing, you know. And as a computer scientist, you know, obviously the first thing in in the pile is zero, but you know, not not everyone thinks of that. Yeah. And then you get on to things like the the format, the actual structure and hierarchy of how everything fits together. So, if you want to represent a gene in a an annotation file you can have about 20 different ways of doing it depending on what the original software was to produce it so maybe a gene might point to some exons and those exons point to cds you know you've got this hierarchical structure particularly if it's eukaryotes and then you can throw in mrnas and you can throw in polypeptides and you can throw in all these different things and the end result is that no one agrees on what a real gene model is there's many interpretations but of course if you're writing software to interpret this data you have to take them all in well thankfully um on these they they usually like have like a label like it's either like cds or or something else like you kind of know what the track is and you deal with it differently it's a little easier for mike for bacteria <laughs> in in that regard mm. but some some of the some of the eukaryote Annotation can be incredibly complicated. Crazy, more like. <laughs> but even bacteria, you know, I, I know with Proca it says CDS, which is great. But other people would say, well, you know, put in exon or gene, even if it is bacteria. Yeah, and there used to be some passes that, w some programs that would expect to see the gene feature. Some would expect to see the CDS feature. Some would expect to see both. I think Proca just has a flag where by default it only shows the CDS and you can flick it on and it'll do both. Whenever I looked at any old, um, you know, complete genomes, gold standard genomes done with Sanger sequencing, like, you know, you pick the K12 E. coli genome, it's got gene and CDS there. Uh, and that's sort of what you expect. I mean, maybe we, if we had more transcriptional data, we might actually change or translational data we might actually change the boundaries a bit well that's a whole other kind of worms you know what is a gene what is a gene no let's not talk about that <laughs> that's like the question my dad always asked me <laughs> he reads an article in the news and then he comes to me and he he has a discussion with me <laughs> it, it's outside my pay grade i don't know <laughs> it, it, it's whatever prodigal tells you is a gene <laughs> no that's a coding sequence there you go. That's a coding sequence. Whatever start to stop is is a coding sequence, right? Well, surely there's no other way. As in, you know, for me, you know, as a computer scientist, right, just looking at the data blankly, it's like a gene is the bit where there's nothing in the middle, you know, in Artemis. So it's where there's no stop codons. No, that's an ORF. An ORF? What's an Open What's the difference between an ORF and a, and a CDS? Okay, so an office. Well, okay, so people will. Um, this is very contentious. Actually, we're probably. I'm probably going to get into trouble. But as far as I was taught, um, an open reading frame is basically that when you open Artemis up and you see that little gap between all the black lines between the stop codons, that is an open reading frame, and that's very easy to predict. You can just see it yourself if you wanted to have an off predictor to spit all of those out. Uh, a, a, What's more difficult is to predict the coding sequence, which is start to stop. So that will exist within the ORF because obviously the, the protein cannot extend 
into another open reading frame because then it would be broken by another stop codon. And it, but it's difficult to predict the start because that tends to change. It's not consistent, uh, and and you don't know if if the you know which because it still uses that same amino acid within the protein itself. So you don't know at what point does it actually start or does it extend further or or what. So that's difficult to know. Um, but there are two different things an orphan a coding sequence and you do need to distinguish the two when you're when you're looking at these structures i suppose so and then of course there's a problem that we have different translation tables you know from nucleotides to amino acids depending on what tiny little variant you're looking at most bacteria are what translation table 11 isn't it and then human viruses is one but then there's so many different edge cases you know like is a mitochondria is four it's terrible that i know all of this stuff and then there's a you know there's about at least 20 different translation tables and if you pick the wrong one for your your bug you're screwed so are you trying to tell me andrew that life has different file formats and different encodings and it's very difficult to work between them much does does art does uh, life imitate art or art imitate life in this instance i've never thought about it but actually that sounds about right yeah there you go so we learn from we learn from the best we learn from from the organisms we study how to make our file formats <laughs> just a complete hodgepodge of whatever works so blast is is similar to an annotation format but i i wouldn't really confuse it with that it's a it's not really a format that was made by committee it was it's a format that is the natural output of the program blast and there are 19 different formats 19 different formats that's just crazy is that would we count that as a good thing or a bad thing that the program is so versatile it gives you whatever you want or should we be terrified that there's that many different ways to represent essentially the same information particularly since everyone just wants you know format 6 or m8 in the old version m8 that's what it was yeah m8, m8. So that, oh, I think I, I was reading uh, last year, I think from last year, or it might be this year, Blast Legacy is dead. Is that the Wash U Blast? No, no, the old one, the old, uh, the old 1991, the original Blast. Because that used to, Blast Plus was different to, to, regular, to old Blast. And there was like a changeover period. But now I think they're not made, the Blast, the Legacy Blast is no longer supported. I think it's actually difficult. It's getting increasingly difficult to find it, and it's all blast plus now. I used to use that legacy blast script because I I myself for like for five years or something after blast plus came out, I never wanted to switch over. Actually, it had slight. It gave you slightly different results because blast plus would kind of force you to use something more like uh, mega blast in blast legacy. So it you know it was a bit more aggressive with joining uh, matches together. And the legacy blast was, well, I don't want to say precise, but it did just give you more nuance of what was going on because it didn't it didn't join things together as as easily. Uh, but so just to be consistent with what you had done before, you kind of stuck with blast. I stuck with blast legacy maybe two years after blast plus came out, just because. Uh, you, you really don't want the coordinates of your alignment to change just because you're using a different project, a uh, different program, and then your you know, supervisor asks, why has this shifted around in your table? 
Do you remember as well then Wash You Blast, which was another independent implementation? And then after everyone had kind of moved over to Blast Plus, they tried to commercialize it and they changed a the name and then they basically had a spin-out company. And of course, that flopped totally because who wants to pay for Blast? It's it's actually, um, it's it's public domain. Is it? Yeah, I think so. Awesome. Blast, Blast Legacy was definitely public domain and I think Blast Plus is also released under public domain. Anyway, back to file formats. File formats, blast file. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh no, my god! Because I've only ever used two of them: the the crunch format and then the the tab format. But have you ever used any others? I've used the XML one as part of uh, mainly for Brig actually, because because at least at that time uh, when I was developing it, the XML format was the one that they recommended in the documentation would not change from version to version. Otherwise, between versions, they might tweak. They said, okay, we might tweak things. And that's the last thing you want to happen on, on, on your program is like the file format you're depending on changes and then you have to go back and change everything. So, and uh, most of these, and I think that also is the case for most of these sort of bio XX or BioPython, BioPerl, whatever libraries. I think BioPython uses the XML uh reads that actually um, and works with that internally rather than the tab format. Well, I never knew that. I always just use the tab format and they have a new, since uh, 2.230, I think, they allow you to add in extra columns that you want in your tab format. Yeah, or you can remove them or, you know, yeah, you, yeah, you can just That's specify great. the output because then it saves you that one extra skip or script or orc thing where you just cut out all the columns you don't want. How did you know what I do? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and one more really weird thing about that crunch format, though, is, again, they advertise you should not parse that one. You should use the XML one. So well done, Nabil. It, it just saved me more hassle in the long run. It is a nice format though, the crunch, because you can see it. And you know, when you do a blast on a website, it, it does look visually, you can see, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of that where a lot of these file formats seem to have, uh, it was in a time when you would do an alignment or you would do a piece of work and you would be readily reading the output, the raw output, and, expect, and it had to be human readable. And obviously, the crunch format is very nice to read. It has, it even has, I think it has the citation at the bottom. It has all the alignment information, all the, all the little bars that join the bases that match together. But that is impossible to pass as a file, as a file format for a computer. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I've never played with the Blast JSON format. Is there a JSON format on the... There is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that would be much, should be much easier than XML <laughs> to work with. Yeah, I think that would be great. But just on Blast, one of my big bugbears is uh, the fact that when you put in options into Blast, you have to use a single dash, which is totally against what uh, most normal command line programs use, where you do a double dash if you have a word, and a single dash if you have a single uh, character. Yeah, can you do single character? I don't think you can. It's like, uh, so you always have to put dash query. You can't put dash Q. Or you can't put dash dash query. That would be the standard thing to do. Yeah, exactly. So I put in... Actually, only a few minutes ago, I put in uh, like blast and dash dash help. I was like, if you want the help, please put in dash help. It's like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Someone should write a wrapper script for this. <laughs> yes, to fix blast. I'll call it blast plus plus. So what do you do? You just, it's just, you just, take, the, uh, you just take the command 
replace all of the single dashes with double dashes. Yeah, to make it work. Or, or the other way around, you put, yeah, just to make it work, to just translate it. Yes, find and replace all single dashes with double dashes, unless you see a single character. No, be the other way around. It's Andrew's writing the double dashes, which need to be converted to single. Oh, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. But... All right, yeah, we'll do it. We'll just put we'll just put a new version of Blast with this correction. But actually, going going back to Blast, like uh, it's it's nice to see a piece of software maintained for such a long period of time and so well. And fair play to those teams in NCBI. Yeah, one format on here I I see now that they're all listed out here in front of us is it actually outputs Sam. Have you ever tried that? Yeah, that that'd be fun. Yeah, I think that'll be that. a really fun way to have it. That's really great they put that in there. Well, if we're going to talk about single sequence alignment, one pairwise, one versus one, I think we'll have to talk about multi-sequence alignment. And I don't know how much both of you have played around with multiple sequence alignment. It was very... I'm, it was everyone who was... Anybody who was anybody was doing that 10 years ago putting a bunch of genomes together and having a look at all of the collinear blocks. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I've been using a lot for, I wrote some software called Gubbins and that took in a multi, multi-fast alignment. And then another piece of software I have called Rory that outputs multi-sequence alignment as well. So I'm very familiar with it. So I remember Gubbins, people would be trying to use Move and things like that, and it would have some kind of format called XMFA, is that it? Yeah, extended multi-faster multi-faster alignment yeah but yeah there's so many formats out there just for something as simple as multi-faster alignment it's just crazy and then the content inside them is also a problem as well because multi-faster alignment or multiple sequence alignment is not an easy problem yeah and, and you had some very obscure rules like the filelip format you had a maximum limit on your uh, taxa names, your OTU names. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, there was. Is uh, like twenty characters? No, or no, something? no, no, no. It wasn't. That's that's the extended edition. I think it was like ten. It's ten, and then extended is thirty. Yeah. Yeah, ten. And wasn't there a relaxed format as well? Yeah, there was a relaxed format to to to, to uh, get around this, but a lot of programs would insist on the strict. Uh, file up format for a very long time and then it would some formats would it would overflow so you'd have a interleaved sequences as you went down through the file oh yeah they'd, they'd be pain. like a yeah they'd have an indent or something but it would be basically interleaved yes <laughs> you're no. like why is there indentation like as if it's like as if it's a body of text you know like from a textbook in my multi-sequence file but then uh, some programs still use it. Like, uh, is it RaxML still uses file-up format? I think, yes, yeah. RaxML will still take file-up, and I think most of them will still take file-up. Yeah, I had, to, I had to produce it for QuickTree, for MashTree. So it, it definitely takes it still. And that format's been around for, what, 30, 40 years nearly? I think 1980? Yes. Uh, I think it was... <laughs> How far back can we go with Philip format? 1980. 1980. It is 39 years old. That's wow. scary, isn't it? That's very scary. October 1980. So before all of us were born. Yes, before all of us were born. Yeah. And the last stable release was the 2nd of November 2014. Wow. Anyway, my vote is for multi-fast alignment. 
it's straightforward. It's just faster files, but you have, you know, multiple ones and they all line up to the same length. How hard is that? <laughs> anyway, so Lee, have you come across the Boulder IO format? Yeah, um, I have seen that a few times every now and then. Um, I think that they used it with the Human Genomics Project, but please um, know that, please don't quote me on that even though I'm being recorded, but um, I'm pretty sure I, I saw that with that. And um, it was, it's also like super useful for pipelining. Like, I don't know if a lot of people have done this before, but you can basically use the Boulder IO format, which is like, it has the records delimited by an equal sign and new line character on each side of the record. And it can be used to um, to read like one entry at a time and parse things pretty easily, actually. So it's more like the key value pairs that people are using with this uh, NoSQL stuff, but an older an olden day version. So I encountered recently uh, using Primer three, and it seems straightforward enough. It's one of the easier formats to have to to parse. Fair enough. How old is Primer three? The manual says uh, copyright nineteen ninety six. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> Why isn't there a Primer 4? <laughs> well, I was looking at all the different Primer 3 websites and Primer Design websites recently, and they're all from the 90s. You know, the, you know, you can tell a 90s website from a mile away by the colours and the frames and the, the way the text boxes are laid out and how unuser-friendly it is. So, yeah, it's old. So were you for against, were you for against the Boulder I.O. format? I think it's grand. Uh, having to parse it, it's it's very easy to parse because it's just key value, and you know you can do that very very easily. There's not much more to it than that. Yeah, I just I do remember now. I used it with Primer three also. I think that, that this can be extended, but it was so easy to parse it. I agree with you. It was just key value separated by equal sign. I remember now. I'm sorry. Why not use JSON? It wasn't invented when Primer three was invented. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but uh. Actually, I came across a thing called Primer Search, and that outputs this really crazy format. It's like multiple lines, some lines have nothing on it. There's no rhyme or rhythm. Well, there, there is, but it's just a pain in the arse to, uh, to actually parse. So, Boulder I.O. Is, is much better. So, ultimately, file formats are defined by the software developers who use and abuse them, even if there are formal specifications. Just like language, which is continuously evolving, if a popular software application introduces a variant of a format, then realistically, it is in common usage and is part of an unofficial format standard. I think some interesting things that we that we looked at are um, proprietary versus formats made by committee. I think that's really interesting. And another thing that we uh, did that was really interesting was which formats are more parsable or which ones are more human readable? I just feel like that we've, it's gotten a lot easier, it's gotten better. And hopefully in the future we will find that universal file format where we don't, or a few, where it just suits everyone's needs. So let's not forget that XKCD comic, you know, where uh, we need one universal format to rule them all. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. 
This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrant Institute.